You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. In 1886, France gave the United States of America the Statue of Liberty, a beautiful gesture of the two nations' friendship. And for the last 138 years, it has stood near the New York City Harbor on Liberty uh, Island, declaring to all who pass by that America is the land of the free. Now, Lady Liberty is a gift that commemorates the signing of the Declaration of Independence when America declared and then later uh, secured its freedom from the tyranny of King George III. And as great as that freedom is, um, it's only one side of the coin. Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust and Auschwitz survivor, recognized this. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about the importance of having a goal to live for. Uh, He wrote this, freedom, however, is not the last word. Freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibility. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibility. And that's why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. So let's let's unpack what Frankel is saying here. He's riffing on the idea that freedom has two sides, Like, like a coin has two sides. Freedom itself has two sides. So there's freedom from negative constraints. That's being um, uh, freed from tyranny and slavery, oppression and coercion, which it's a beautiful aspect of um, freedom. But the other side of freedom is what you do with it. This is freedom for something. It's taking that gift of liberation from negative constraints and then doing something responsible with it. This is the freedom to pursue a moral good, a common goal, and a vision for life. In other words, when you've been freed from something... You need to take that freedom and go do something responsible with it. Otherwise, as Frankel reminds us, it can just degenerate into something arbitrary. This other side of freedom asks not what we are free from, but what are we free to do? What should we be pursuing? That's why Frankel offered the idea of this supplementary statue of responsibility on the West Coast to complement the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. This morning, as we continue in our sermon series, Deliverance and Devotion, we've been going chapter by chapter through uh, the book of Exodus. We come to Exodus chapter 20. And the words that you heard read uh, this morning in our scripture reading are some of the most uh, famous words. Um, Even people who aren't familiar with the Bible, have never opened it and read a page of it, have heard of the Ten Commandments. And often as we approach the Ten Commandments, um, we, we approach them negatively. We see them as constraints, as uh, restrictions or limits on our freedom. In fact, the idea of, uh, of commandments and restrictions seem to contradict the whole notion of deliverance and liberty. 
But my goal this morning is to sort of flip the script on that uh, mentality. Because you see, the book of Exodus, from beginning to end, is a book about the deliverance of God's people. And this takes place in two movements throughout the book. And we've already gone through these chapters, but if you go chapters 1 to 15, it's about how God delivers and liberates um, his people from this external tyranny of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is outside of them. He's, he's this external uh, negative uh, constraint on the people. And as God delivers them from the tyranny of Pharaoh, you could commemorate that first movement with the Statue of Liberty that, that commemorates and celebrates them being delivered out of oppression. But this second movement, the rest of the book, in fact, most of the book, is actually about God casting a vision for what they should do with that freedom. They've been liberated out of slavery and now God is teaching his people how to live and how to be responsible with that freedom. This is the freedom that God has liberated them to pursue the abundant life that God intends for his people. The rest of the book is the story of how a delivered people becomes a devoted people. Devoted to God for their good and his glory. And you could commemorate this second half, this other movement of the book with this statue of responsibility. If we come to really understand Exodus, Exodus is not a story of truncated or cut off freedom, but a full and complete freedom, both a freedom from something and a freedom for something. Now, as we move through this chapter in chapter 20, looking at the Ten Commandments, we'll do so in three movements. The first movement is this. We are set free from slavery by grace. Before any of the commands are given, any imperatives are given, God reminds his people that we are saved by grace. And second, we are set free for Godward devotion. So if the the first few verses talk about what we're freed from, the rest of the Ten Commandments talk about what we're freed for. And we are free for Godward devotion. See, God does not set his people free for autonomy or self-rule. Rather, he sets us free in order to be devoted to him. Because God knows, as he's designed us and made us, that it's only in loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength will we be able to truly experience his gift of freedom. And then our final movement, we'll see third, that we are set free for responsible love toward others. If the first half of the Ten Commandments, the first four, are about loving God, the second half, the last six, are about what it means to um, interact and to love others. uh, That we bear a responsibility for how we treat one another. So let's jump right into the text, Exodus 20 and verse 1, to see our first point, that we are set free from slavery by grace. So here again, the word of the Lord. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now as we open up chapter 20, I want to remind us of the context. Often uh, we just pull these verses right out. We just kind of read them. We forget the scene that is going on. And I don't want you to forget that scene because it is uh, glorious and wonderful and awesome. And at the same time, terrifying. If you remember, last week we were in Exodus 19. The people of God have arrived at Mount Sinai. God has taken them away, as far away from the promised land as they've ever been. 
Because Sinai is further away from the promised land than even where they were in Goshen and Egypt. And he's brought them to the secluded place to get their attention and their singular focus. Because, as we saw last week, the time has come for the people of God to meet their God. And over the last several days, they spent time uh, preparing their hearts, confessing their sin, getting ready to meet um, their maker. And they've, they've demonstrated that internal preparation with this external preparation by washing their clothes and coming ready to meet God. They've set the boundaries of where they can go on the mountain. Because you remember God has told them, if you go too far, if you come up on the mountain, you will surely die. So they've set the boundaries. They've washed their clothes. They prepared their hearts. And on the third day... As God descends on the mountain, the mountain begins to quake. I mean, literally there's an earthquake happening. The mountain is trembling at the presence of God. Thunder and lightning fill the sky. So they're seeing the awesomeness of God. They're hearing the thunder. They're feeling it. And God, the, uh, Exodus 19 says that when God descends on the mountain, he does so in a smoky, cloudy, fiery blaze of glory. And then he begins to speak. That's how the first people heard these 10 commandments. See, up until this point, God's people have never spoken with him face to face. Every single time they've received the word of God, it has come through a mediator. Now that doesn't make it any less the word of God that it comes through a mediator. But Moses' voice plays differently than God's voice. And here, they start to hear God's voice audibly for themselves. It's also worth noting as we begin that Exodus 20 is commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments. It goes by that name, but it also goes by another name. It's also called the Ten Words. See, here in Exodus 20, the text says, And God spoke these words. Later in Deuteronomy, when Moses is looking back on this event and, and then re-giving and restating um, the Ten Commandments, they will refer to them as the Ten Words. Uh, how many of you have ever heard the term the Decalogue? Anybody? Decalogue? Okay, a few of you. Decalogue. Deca means ten. Logos means words. The Ten Words. That's what the word Decalogue means. Now Exodus 20 does contain imperatives. So it's right and proper to call them Ten Commandments. But it, it doesn't just include commands. There's also warnings, there's promises, and declarations. And so with all of those things and all those other speech acts, um, it's also right to call them the Ten Words. And I'll use those kind of interchangeably throughout the text. Now as we keep going, the first words they hear are a reminder of who he is. So again, before he gets into any of the imperatives, he wants the first words for them to hear to remind them of who he is. And he says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. This is the functional equivalent of what Moses heard in the burning bush. Remember when Moses meets God, he says, who, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. Everything that follows, the ten words, the ten commandments, they are a reflection of the character of God himself. The commands, the promises, the warnings, none of them are just arbitrary because the words of God flow from the character of God. God's words always match his character. It's not like us where sometimes our words and our character are misaligned. 
That never happens. Every word that comes from God is a, an exact representation of his character and his nature. So the idea is if we spend time thinking about each one of God's words, we will learn something about the character and nature of God. That's why Christians have always been a people of the word. There's a reason why we, we hold it in such high esteem. There's a reason why we say this should be a part of your daily routine to spend time reflecting on, thinking on the words of God in Scripture. Why? Not so that we become Bible scholars, but because, so that we would know God. Because his character and nature are embedded in the very words themselves. The ten words are the character and likeness of God expressed in verbal form. Later in Leviticus 19, God will call his people to be holy because he is holy. Now this is significant because God's call in our life to obey his word is not arbitrary. It's not just that God likes things to go a certain way. Like we all have our preferences of how we'd like things to go. That's not what's going on. Because as we obey God's word, what he's saying is we will become like him. As we think about it, if his character and nature are embedded in those words, and the more we follow those words and have those words shape and form us, we will become like that word, which is another way to say we will become like him. Be holy because I am holy. We are made in his image. God has made us, male and female, in his image. And the degree to which we reflect his image is the degree to which we will truly live the human life as he has designed us to live. Not only does he remind them that he is the Lord, he reminds them that he is already in relationship with his people. In fact, earlier in Exodus, he refers to Israel as his firstborn son. If you remember in Exodus 4, When Yahweh tells Moses to go back to Egypt, he says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now why is this significant to remember that Israel and the Lord are in relationship? Here's why. Because everything about the ten words, everything about the ten commandments is meant to be read, heard, obeyed, and lived in the context of a father-son, a parent-child relationship. He is in relationship with them. And the relationship that he chooses for them to uh, kind of as an analogy to understand the relationship is a father and a son. It's not boss and employee. It's not king and subjects. He's saying, listen, all of these words, I want you to receive them as a loving son receives instruction from his father. Where there's inherent trust, where there's inherent relationship, where there's this recognition that all that you're saying for me is for my good. Peter Lightheart says this, God gave his first command to Adam, his first son, at Sinai. And at Sinai, he speaks to his new son, the new Adam. The 10 words are imperatives, but not merely imperatives. When Father Yahweh speaks to son Israel, he discloses his likes and dislikes. The 10 words are a personal declaration that reveals Yahweh's character. And don't miss this. Like Proverbs, Proverbs, they are father-son talk. The ten new creative words are designed to form Israel into an image of his father. Now, how would it change if we approached 
the Ten Commandments, less like what it looks like to be subjects who are obligated to obey their king, but as loving words from your father who has your best interest in mind. How would it change if we read the Ten Commandments with with that kind of mentality as a son receiving the words from his father? Now hang with me here for a moment. In creation, in Genesis 1, we find God speaking another ten words. In Genesis 1, if you count, ten times it'll say, and God spoke, and God spoke, and God spoke. And every time that he creates, every time that he speaks, what is he doing? He's creating something. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be uh, sun, moon, and stars, right? Every time he speaks, it's a creative act. And now here in Exodus... We're meant to see the creation of a new humanity. We're meant to see God doing something with his 10 words to create. He spoke to Adam, giving him words to live by. Now at Sinai, God is again speaking to his son. He speaks 10 words that if guarded and obeyed, will form Israel into a new creation. They will become a new humanity. See, these 10 words from the father to the son are given to them as words to live by, words to be followed, words that will uh, result in the creation and the formation of a new holy nation that will be blessed to be a blessing to the entire world. See, these words aren't restrictive words of a tyrannical ruler. It's not as if they've been redeemed from one tyranny to be uh, delivered into another tyranny. That's not what's going on here. These are life-giving words from a father to a son. The goal of these words are to teach this newly freed people how to stay free and to live free. In verse 2, he reminds them of their first liberation. He says, I am the Lord and I delivered you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's reminding them that they were freed from external uh, tyranny in Egypt. And this order is crucial because it will become the pattern of the gospel. If you read in the New Testament, the letters, almost every single letter spends the first half of that book talking about what we've been freed from. Talking about all that God has done, the good news, the past tense of what God has done for us. And then the second half of of the letter goes, and now here's how you live. Here are the implications. Here's how you respond to that. Here's what you've been freed from, and here's what you've been freed for. Friends, in the gospel, grace that saves always precedes the law that demands. Grace is always given to us before it ever asks anything of us. The laws that follow are not given in order that they might one day become the redeemed. No, they are already redeemed. He did not give them the law and say, here's your trial period. Let's give this a good college try and see what happens. And if you do well, then I'll save you. No, he delivers them. Egypt is in the rear view. Promised land is in front of them and he's teaching them how to live. Kevin DeYoung says, the 10 commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. That's so crucial. The, 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 the law is not given to teach us how to become saved. No, they are rules for free people to stay free. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Friends, why should we obey? Because God has saved us. He has liberated us. 
And therefore we can trust him that not only will he take us out of slavery, but he'll deliver us into the promised land. As the redeemed, God gives them the law as a loving father, setting before them the path of life and encouraging them to see their obedience as a response of love and gratitude towards their redeeming father and the pathway towards true freedom. Friends, God does not save his people for autonomy. He does not save us so that we can then determine what we should do with our lives. In fact, I would argue that self-rule, autonomy, is a counterfeit form of freedom. It looks free on the surface, but it's actually another kind of slavery. Autonomy may feel free in the moment. Like, I can do whatever I want. But it will quickly devolve into self-tyranny and a different kind of slavery. See, the people of God have been freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And now the people of God need to be freed from, the, uh, from themselves. We need to be free from the tyranny of ourselves. In his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Oz Guinness writes this. The great paradox of freedom is that the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. No one and nothing enslaves free people as much as they enslave themselves. The repeated failure of free societies is a fact of history that can easily be demonstrated. Listen to this. Freedom commonly fails when it runs to excess and breeds permissiveness and license. Now this is one of those notions that is really hard to get out of our minds because everything about America and what we've been discipled into runs contradictory to this. We have to get this notion out of our head that limits and constraints and rules equal bondage and oppression. We've been discipled in America to think that rules, restrictions, constraints, thou shalt nots are really another form of tyranny. And that couldn't run more counter and opposite to the scriptures. The 10 words in the law that follow We're not given to them to bring them into a new bondage. Rather, they were to establish in them a new freedom, a true freedom that would lead to their flourishing. That's why James in chapter 1 verse 25 calls the law, and James is looking back on the Old Testament, by the way. He calls it the law of liberty. That these laws actually are are, are libertarian. They, They produce freedom. James writes, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is saying, if you come to see the law as as God's perfect word, if you come to see the law as something that actually frees you, and you not just hear it, but do it, you will be blessed in your doing. It's another way to say you will thrive, you will flourish. See, the law is not given to restrict us. The law is meant to show us how to live as beloved sons and daughters of God who are delivered out of the slavery of sin and liberated to live as God has designed us to live. Roberts and Wilson in their book, Echoes of Exodus, they write this. In the scriptures, there's more emphasis placed on the freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, for growth and obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, Slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It's for them to find delight 
delight in serving the new one. See, God knows that without him, left to our own self-rule, we'll find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. And you know it's true. Again, Roberts and Wilson are helpful. They said, no matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations, and oppression, we still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. We get free from boredom and we fall into the slavery of distraction. We pursue liberty from prohibitions and we fall into bondage to addiction. We escape repression and we become enslaved to lust. We are released from isolation and we fall captive to peer pressure and the power of the online mob. We pursue liberty from constraints upon our natures and we fall into the bondage of our untrained passions. Friends, you just have to look around at America. America is, by all measures, like the most free society that's ever lived. And we're also the most addicted, enslaved people on the face of the planet. Right? When your freedom doesn't have a trajectory, it will quickly devolve into another form of bondage. The only way to be free, free from external and internal tyranny, is to be delivered into devotion to the Lord. That's why the second half of Exodus focuses on these 10 words and what devotion to God looks like. God saves his people by grace through faith and then he graciously teaches them how to live in a Godward devotion to him. True deliverance, it's never for self-autonomy, but for Godward devotion. God in his grace sets us free from slavery Now, let's get into these 10 words to see that we are set free to love God and to love others. Now, let me just set the stage for a moment. Before we read, uh, get into the Decalogue, let me establish the scope of what we can do with the rest of our time this morning. We simply don't have time to give like a full, robust, uh, detailed um, explanation of all of uh, the 10 words. And there are some great books that do um, just that. Let me give you three good recommendations. If you're looking, like if this piques your interest and you want to do a deep dive into the Ten Commandments, here's three books that will be helpful guides. The first, I've already quoted him this morning, Peter Lightheart. He's got a book called The Ten Commandments, A Guide to the Perfect Law of Liberty. It's an excellent book. Magdal read it this last week. It comes highly recommended by him. Um, it's a great one. Second one is Written in Stone, The Ten Commandments in Today's Moral Crisis by Philip Ryken. And the third one is Ten Words to Live By, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands by Jen Wilkin. We're going to put links to these um, in the weekly sync uh, later this week. They would all be worth your time um, and study. In fact, at some point in our uh, preaching calendar, we'll probably do like a Ten Commandments series where we go through um, each one. But what is helpful with the rest of our time um, is to think about uh, the Ten Commandments in the way that Jesus thought about him. Um, When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Instead of picking one, he brilliantly summarized the whole law like this. You remember in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, he said this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all the law and the prophets. What he's saying is if you truly understood, if you read through all of the law and you, and you want to kind of get it all in your head, it's really basically this. Love God 
and love neighbor. If you are focused on loving God with wholehearted devotion and loving your neighbor as you want to be loved, you will live out the law. Jesus recognized that the first four commands teach us to love God with a wholehearted devotion and the last six teach us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now this kind of love that Jesus talks about, love God, love neighbor, we, we, we like throw the word love around uh, pretty flippantly. It's not superficial or theoretical. This is the kind of love that prioritizes and organizes all of life. It's the kind of love that, that informs your decisions and has implications. It's the kind of love that's uh, not just easy to say, but hard to live out. So without further ado, let's work our way quickly through the 10 words. First command, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first word, and it makes clear that if we're going to love God, he demands undivided loyalty and devotion. Now, generally sharing is good. Like that's one of the first things you teach children is how to share because a child's first words are often mine. So you, you, one of the things you want to do as a parent is teach them, no, no, we share, we share. Sharing is generally good, but not everything is meant to be shared. A husband is not wrong for not wanting to share his wife. A wife is not wrong for not wanting to share her husband. And the same is infinitely true of God. His love for us, perfected and proven in our redemption as sons and daughters, is not meant to be shared. That means God need, like needs to be and desires to be your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. Or another way to say it is God should have your highest attention your deepest affection and unwavering allegiance. The first word, the first command says, all of you devoted to all of him. That's what the first commandment is saying, that all of you should be devoted to all of him. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If the first word is about worshiping the right God, the second word is about worshiping the right God in the right way. Israel, if you think about it, has just left a region with a multiplicity of gods that have been represented by things above the earth and on the earth and under the earth. And they're all represented by some kind of image. And God makes very clear he forbids idol making. We're forbidden from reducing God into something made by our hands that we are not supposed to try to take Yahweh, the one true God, and try to contain him into some sort of figurine the thing about idols are they're controllable gods you can control them and the second word forbids us from trying to make god manageable and controllable now we don't often do this in our modern age with actual like totems and figurines and stuff we often do it in a figurative sense we like to reduce god but according to our preferences instead of how he reveals himself in scripture one way that we can manage and control God is by choosing some passages of Scripture that we like and some passages of Scripture that we don't like. It's another way of controlling and managing God. This also includes um, idolatry in all of its form, including the idols of the heart. 
Now these are equally destructive and often harder to detect. Like if you walk into a house and there's a little figurine, it's easy to detect that idol. But the idols that lurk in our heart are not so easy to uh, detect. Now these idols can be anything, anything that we ascribe value to and priority over God. The late great Tim Keller said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give, uh, that you seek to give you what only God can give. Now under that, guys, now all of us go, okay, I'm an idolater. I have made other things more of a priority than God. Here's a few questions that can help you detect the idols of the heart. To whom or what do I look to for significance? Everybody looks for significance. Everybody wants to feel important and valued, like you're worth taking up the space and breathing the air that you do. And the question is, what are you looking to to validate your significance? This is you saying, I, if I don't have this, then I'm nothing. If I don't accomplish this, then I'm not somebody. It's what you look to to make your somebodiness important. To give yourself an identity. That's significance. Where you find your identity, that's, that's tied to significance. And whatever is giving you that significance has your highest priority. You will spend money on it. You will give your time to it. And if it is ever threatened, you will seek to protect its position and priority in your life. To whom or what do you look to for significance? Second, what makes life meaningful? What gives your life meaning and purpose and weight? That's something that has a priority in your life. Another way to ask this is, what do I love and what do I fear? And those are often really close together. We often fear losing the things that we love the most. Like what in your life right now, if it were taken away, would take out the very foundation upon which you stand. Also from this second word, we can extrapolate that God cares about how we worship him. We should be thoughtful about the words we pray and the songs we sing. We should, be care, we should care about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We should care about regularly gathering with God's people to prioritize the worshiping of God. See, God desires for us to come together as the family of God. Yes, for ourselves, but also because he just deserves to have millions and millions of people worshiping him on Sundays. Like he's worth that. This explanation that he gives on visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generation often comes with some confusion. Like, are you telling me that if I commit sins, that my children are going to be held liable for them. And that's not what he's saying. God does not punish children for the sins of their mothers and their fathers. What God is saying is that he will hold each generation culpable for the sins that they commit, regardless of where they learned it. So what he's saying is if children learn idolatry from their parents and continue in that idolatry, they will also be held liable for it. If children continue in the sins of their parents, they will receive the same punishment. And equally true, if your parents are idolaters, but you choose to be a God-fearer and to worship him, 
he will not punish you for your sins of your parents. Why? Because God is a just God. He holds us liable for the sins that we commit. God will not withhold his love from someone because of the sins of their parent. That is good news that God is a just God. He will show his steadfast love to all who love and keep his commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The third word has to do with taking God's name seriously. Now at a basic level, this certainly means not using his name like a swear word or an explicative. Like you stub your toe and you say, Jesus Christ, you know, that would be... Yes, that's one way to think about this. But it's actually much deeper than that. This means understanding that God's name carries a weight to it. When we bear his name, we identify with him, and we bear a responsibility to live in a way that resembles what his name resembles. Again, Peter Lightheart is helpful. God binds his name and reputation to us. Whether his name is praised or blasphemed depends on whether we bear his name with the weight it deserves. It is a weighty responsibility to bear the weighty name of the living God before the world. This summer I was coaching a a U-12 Little League All-Star team in a a Little League World Series tournament. And uh, we, we tried to impress upon our players that on the front of their jerseys, it said Waltham, and on the back of their jerseys, it had their last name. And so they were literally bearing like two names. And so when they walked out there, people are going to say, okay, look at all these little Waltham uh, Little League children. They bear the name of their town and they bear the name of their family and how they act on the field, both in giving it their very best and in sportsmanlike conduct. They're representing their families and their community. And that's just like a silly little, like World Series, like Little League World Series thing, right? In a much greater way, when we bear the name of Christ, we are, we are a visible representation to a watching world of what a Christian believes, how a Christian thinks, how a Christian acts. Like we're, we're, we're essentially helping someone come to know Christ. And it matters how we bear that name. That's what it means not to take the name's Lord in vain. Vain, vanity means like a weightlessness, a meaninglessness. We don't bear the name of Christ with no consequence. That people will judge who God is for right or wrong. They will judge who God is based on the people who bear his name. And this word is saying you should take that seriously. It shouldn't be a flippant thing to bear the name of Christ. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth word is the first command stated in the positive, to remember The Sabbath. God reminds his people that God established a rhythm of work and rest. A life filled with only work is tyranny. And they know that full well. Remember, they're slaves. They didn't have days off. There's no Sabbath day in Egypt. And all 
a life completely devoted to all work is tyranny. But at the same time, a life only filled with rest is laziness. And so God models for us a balance and a rhythm of work and rest. Jesus taught us that the Sabbath was given to humanity as a gift, not as an oppression. Rest is a gift to be enjoyed. And every time we rest, it's an expression of faith that says, Lord, I trust you to provide. For the Christian, Sabbath means regularly prioritizing worship with God's people and spending deliberate time where you purposefully disengage from the tasks at hand and you rest in Christ your Savior. It doesn't mean you rest when all the work is done because, friends, that never happens. There's always more to be done. But it's you saying, I am going to trust. I'm disengaging. I'm disconnecting so that I can rest in Christ. Taken as a whole, the first four words give us a framework of what it means to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. All of us given to all of him, regularly examining our hearts to ensure that nothing um, takes his place in our life. Remembering our responsibility to bear his name with a seriousness and a thoughtfulness and spending time to regularly express our faith and trust in him with a balanced life of work and rest. Now let's look at the last words to see that God sets us free not only to love him, but also to be responsible in our love towards others. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God is giving you. In the second half of the Decalogue, God directs our attention towards our relationships And it's no wonder that he would direct us first and primarily towards uh, what it looks like in the home. This fundamental and primary relationship that exists between parents and children. This fifth word is directed towards building a home where children honor their mother and their father. That they respect their word. That they learn what it means to grow up and to thrive under a loving authority. This means that children are to trust their parents that they're to believe the best about their rules and intentions. They're to listen to their parents and live with a sense of gratitude. This also implies that parents would wield their authority in a grace-filled and loving way. One of the goals of a healthy parent-child relationship is that as children thrive in that home under the good authority of their parents, what are they doing? They're being trained to thrive under the good authority of a loving God. It's also worth noting that as we get older, though the implications of this command may shift, it is never erased. So as a 41-year-old man, I don't have to obey every word from my mother, but I'm still committed to honor and respect her. God values the values. God values the family. And every other relationship that we have is built off of a healthy foundation that is first set in the home. That's why it gets priority. Verse 13, you shall not murder. The sixth word inherently expresses the value that God places on the life that he has created. We're to never undervalue life to the point where we treat it flippantly. Human life is to be protected Because humans are made in the image of God. That is why Christians believe that life is valuable at every stage of development from the womb 
to the tomb, regardless of sentience, regardless of their ability to contribute to society. The very fact that humans bear God's image, give them all the dignity, all the worth, all the value they will ever need. Jesus also takes this command deeper in the Sermon on the Mount when he warns against harboring anger and hatred in your heart. Remember he said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I'm taking it deeper to tell you what about the anger and animosity that can often just brew in the heart towards others. And the way that we tear one another apart with our actions and our words, it's like, a, it's like another form of murder when we break people down because it's impossible to love your neighbor when you're angry with them. If the goal is love your neighbor, it's very difficult to love them when you're angry at them and you're um, contemplating all sorts of terrible, hateful things. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh word is both a word about the sacredness of marriage and a word about uh, a warning against the destruction of the home. Friends, adultery breaks marriages and destroys, and destroys home. The seventh word flies in the face of our overly sexualized culture that says the only standard of sexual right and wrong is consent. And into that, the Lord says, no, I am sovereign over sex and marriage. God is the one who defines marriage and God is the one who defines what is right and good when it comes to sex. And when you look at all the biblical passages about sex and you put them all together, we come to the conclusion that the boundaries for sexual freedom are a lifelong commitment within a, a, a lifelong commitment within heterosexual marriage. Verse 15, you shall not steal. At the heart of the eighth word is entitlement. Entitlement. See, it's a failure to recognize that God actually owns everything. And according to his discretion, he's the one who gives and he's the one who takes away. And when we steal something, we are assuming ownership. We're elevating ourselves to the place of God and deciding who gets to have what. That's what you do. When you steal, you're saying, I should get to decide who gets to have what. I'm, and I'm entitled to that thing and therefore I should get to have it. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The ninth word reflects the reality that God is a God of truth and justice and his people must be as well. This speaks against the, the evil of lying and slander and gossip, betrayal and rumors. This is using our words to spread hate and lies instead of using our words to build up and speak the truth. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If the ninth word is about entitlement, the tenth word is about contentment. At the heart of coveting is this deep dissatisfaction and discontentment. It's believing the lie that you would finally be happy and fulfilled if you just had more things or different things. Now we could spend a sermon on each one of these 10 words. But now, with just the limited time we have left, we could summarize commandments six through 10 with the words of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving your neighbor, you're not gonna take what's theirs. If you're loving your neighbor, you're not gonna kill them. If you're loving your neighbor, you're not gonna um, try to covet their wife. You're gonna be about building them up. 
Jesus says, treat your mother and father, your brother and your sister, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, strangers, even your enemies, the way that you would want to be treated. Give them the same kind of love you would wish to receive. And when we do this, we are recognizing the value, the dignity, and inherent worth that they have because they are made in the image of God. As we close, this passage ends with the people trembling and afraid of the voice of God. So much, in fact, that they say, Moses, don't let God speak to us again. Like, you go speak to him and then you bring the words back to us. In fact, they start to move away from God. We may not see it clearly in this moment, but this posture hints at a hardness of heart that will later be revealed in Exodus See, if you keep reading, we'll get to it. It's not long before Israel, God's firstborn son, fails to keep the law as they break the first and second word. Another situation in the coming weeks, Moses will be up on the mountain and they want a God they can control. So they, um, they, they take all that golden plunder that they were given as they left Egypt and they melt it and they make a golden calf, a representation of an Egyptian God. And they begin to bow down and worship it. See, they like that cow. That cow never speaks to him. That, that cow never makes the mountain tremble. That cow never demands anything of them. And they bow down and worship it. If you keep reading in the Israel story, you'll see that they fail to be a faithful firstborn son. But into this failure, Jesus steps in because Yahweh will have a son who conforms his very life to the 10 words. He is God's beloved son. He is the true son who lives in perfect devotion to his father. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as himself, he actually does it. He does love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he does love his neighbor with a self-giving, sacrificial love. He even loves his enemies, that he'd be willing to die for you and me enemies to bring us close to him and in devotion to the father and to see a new humanity and community formed he goes to the cross to die for our sins in our place and not only does he take upon himself the punishment we deserve but he perfectly lives the law of liberty on our behalf so that we can receive the required righteousness that God demands so that we could be redeemed from slavery so seven mile let's remember as we strive to be holy as God is holy, as we seek to live out the freedom purchased for us by Christ through the 10 words, to love God and to love others, let's do so as sons and daughters who are already redeemed, who are already loved. Take the freedom that Christ has purchased for you and put it into action. Freedom for worship, freedom for obedience, freedom to love God and to love others. Don't do so trying to gain something, trying to gain acceptance and approval because you already have it. You're not trying to gain love because you're already loved. Grace is in place when we fail. So we strive to love God and neighbor so that we can freely become who God has created us to be.